May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you have a Bible handy, please open to the Gospel of John chapter 11, and that will serve as our sermon text for the evening. As you know, we are walking through the Gospel of John with Jesus. And this week marks a transition from the public ministry of Jesus to what we might call the private ministry of Jesus leading up to the last week and the last few days of His life. Last week in John 10, we tackled the nagging question, can I lose my salvation? And I tried to reassure you that everyone who trusts in Jesus is eternally safe and secure in His hands and in the hands of the Father. Now while we may know that that is totally true, the fact of the matter is that we do not always feel like it is true. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, section 4 says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways, as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or violent temptation, or by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and allowing even those who reverence Him to walk in darkness and have no light. Yet, true believers are never completely deprived of that seed of God and life of faith, that love for Christ and fellow believers, that sincerity of heart and conscience concerning duty, out of which, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. In other words, the Westminster Divine spoke realistically to the matter of assurance and grace in salvation. While we know that salvation is sure and secure in Christ, we do not always feel like it is sure and secure in Christ. So like the people we're going to meet in our story today, some of us could realistically say, I've been there and I've done that. I've felt that way on many occasions. And that is why this week we are going to tackle another question that nags everyone who professes to be a Christian. And the question is, where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? Almost everyone in the world, including unbelievers, want to know where God was on the day that their world fell apart or where God is in the moment when their life is bursting at the seams and fraying around the edges. One way or another, almost everyone asks the question, lifting their eyes to heaven, where are you? Now before we answer that question, we need to deal with some other things in this story, and then we're going to connect our stories into this story. So if you're willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village 
of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. Now I'm sad to report that for many people, this story is simply an empty filler that gets us to the next part of the story that's really exciting, the most important and exciting part of the story of Jesus actually raising Lazarus from the dead. But I don't want us to skip over texts like this as if they're not important. The Holy Spirit gave these words to us to teach us something. And a couple of things that we learn in this story is that Jesus was a real man who had real friends in this life. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were real people whom Jesus really and truly loved. They were real friends. They visited each other, and Jesus often stayed in their home. The other thing I want you to notice is that this story is here to teach us some vital and essential truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Namely this, that Jesus systematically defies our expectations and he systematically offends our sensibilities. He frequently says and does things that we find to be very strange and very odd. Now, they're strange and odd from our point of view. They're quite normal from his point of view. But you can see as things eternal and things temporal come together and clash and collide, sometimes what Jesus says and does seems very weird. I want you to take, for example, what happens in the story. Look at this painfully slow response that Jesus has to the message sent to them by Mary and Martha. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, without saying it, the sisters are obviously requesting Jesus' presence at their home, at the sickbed of their brother Lazarus. They want Jesus to come and comfort them, perhaps heal their brother, just to be present with them. 
But when Jesus hears the message, his response is, it can read like this, shrug his shoulders, eh, the illness will not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Very nonchalant, right? Literally, he's saying the sickness is not for death, but rather for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, this is high-octane theology, and he is exactly right in what he says, but anyone who has ever been around a guy like this who speaks in this way knows that this is not very good bedside manner. When your friend is hurting and suffering and his sisters are crying and they want you to come, the proper response, at least as I was taught in Bible school and in seminary, is not to quote high-octane theology at them. It's not to break down for them that God is sovereign over all things and this is only happening for the glory of God. All of that is true, by the way, but that's probably not the best thing to say to people who are hurting. Or maybe it is. You see how it seems weird to us, but so normal to Jesus to speak in these terms. But from our point of view, this seems to be the first strange thing that Jesus says in the story. I mean, this is not the way we respond to such news. If you get a call that one of your friends is sick and the people want you to come visit or they want you to pray or they want you to respond in some way, your response is not going to be, I'm just going to hang out over here for a couple of days, radio silent. I'm not even going to tell you what I'm thinking or how I feel about anything. But that's what happens in this story. It takes time for their message to get from Bethany out to where Jesus is teaching and baptizing, out where John was in the wilderness outside the city. It takes time for the message to get to him. And then he responds, and it would take time for that message to get back. But he doesn't send the reply message. He just hangs out where he is for a couple of days. We usually respond emotionally in some way, perhaps with sorrow and tears. And then we respond practically beyond that, perhaps by making a call or even paying a visit to someone. But that is not Jesus' response here. The strange thing about this is we are told in the story that Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the Holy Spirit does not toss that word love around lightly. And this is not the way that Jesus' relationships are described in general, but there is something special about his relationship with this family unit. What's interesting is we're told that he loves Mary and her sister and Lazarus, and pay attention here, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Do you hear the contradiction? Do you feel the tension of that? You expect the story to go something like, Jesus loved this family unit so much that when he heard that his friend was sick, he got up and he went to him as quickly as he could. He dropped everything and made a beeline to Bethany. But that's not how the story reads. He stayed two more days where he was. Why hesitate? Why delay? Well, one commentator, Ritterboss, explains that Jesus came only to do his Father's will, period. So he takes us back to 
John chapter 2, when Jesus' mother Mary wanted him to do something about the lack of wine at a wedding. And recall in that story how Jesus resisted his mother's request and he hesitated to act. Once again, we see in this story that Mary and Martha asked him to come and do something for their brother, but Jesus hesitates. He resists. He waits. Why? Because Jesus lived and moved and existed on a different time frame than everyone else. He lived and moved and existed by the beat of a different drummer than everyone else. In Jesus, we see a man who lived by the beck and call of his Father alone. He did not live by every man's beck and call. Now in this story, as readers of the story, hearers of the story, we might be tempted to think that Jesus should have responded differently. That he should have responded perhaps the way we would have responded had we received that message. We think that Jesus should have just gotten up and traveled across the landscape and ended up in Bethany, gone into the house, laid his hands on Lazarus, and raised him up off of his sickbed. In other words, we think we know what Jesus should have done, but he didn't do it, and we might even feel a little disappointed in Jesus because he didn't act quickly enough. He dragged his feet. As a pastor, I think of this story, I was thinking of it this week, and I thought, man, just imagine how comforting it would have been to Martha and Mary to see Jesus walking up the road, to see Him standing on their porch in the doorway, to see Him sitting next to the sickbed of their brother. Just think of how comforting it would have been for them to see that. Think of how comforting it would have been to Lazarus to know that the teacher he loved and the teacher who loved him went out of his way, went the extra mile literally to come see him in his hour of need. But that is not the response we get. That is not what we see in the story. There's a part of us that thinks that Jesus should have gotten up and traveled over there, but he didn't. Maybe you don't care too much. Maybe it doesn't matter to you. But I think about it, and I'll be honest with you, I kind of scratch my head and wonder, why were you dragging your feet, man? You love this guy. Why didn't you go to him? But think about the struggle we have here. Think about how this story really tests our faith and our understanding of who Jesus is. See, there's a part of us that thinks that Jesus is kind of like our family physician, that he's limited by space-time reality, and in order for our family physician to help us, he has to be in the same room as us, he has to look at us, perhaps touch us, take our temperature, he needs to be present to help us in some way. And sometimes we think Jesus is like our family physician. That he has to be there in order to do something. And that he has to be there in a certain way, a concrete, tangible way in order to do something. 
But you see what's happening to us as we get to this stage of the story of the Gospel of John? We read the story and then we start to feel the tension like something's not right here. And what's not right is that we're forgetting all that we've learned about Jesus. Let me remind you of some things. After all we've seen and heard Jesus do up to this point, why in the world would we think that Jesus needs to be physically present in order to act and do something in the life of Lazarus? After all this time, do we still think or believe that Jesus is merely a man with all of the space-time limitations that other men have? Do we still imagine that Jesus is a healer who needs to be present spatially and temporally in order to treat those who are sick or in need? Do I need to remind you of the time that Jesus healed a nobleman's son from 20 miles away just by speaking the word, your son lives? Jesus is the Word made flesh for the life of the world. He is the Son of God. But He does not have the same space-time limitations that we do. We learn throughout the Gospel of John that He is present by His Spirit even when He is not present in His body. And that was not just true then. It is just as true now. So after waiting two days, Jesus says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, which is a very general way of saying, let's go to Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now keep in mind that Jerusalem is a very dangerous place for Jesus. The reason Jesus left Jerusalem just a few days ago is because there were so many death threats against him in that city. And so he went out into the wilderness to escape all of that. And he is teaching and baptizing out in the wilderness, avoiding Jerusalem because that's where the trouble is. The disciples are picking up on this. Notice that when they wait two days, the disciples are not protesting. They're not saying, hey, Jesus, he's really sick. They wouldn't have sent message if he wasn't really sick. He's terminally ill. We should get up and go. When they see Jesus sit back and not move towards Bethany, they're actually relieved. And we know they're relieved because of the response they have when he finally says, let's go back to Judea. Then they remind him, hey, um, Jesus, remember how just now, I mean, it was like recently, those guys were trying to kill you. They were trying to stone you. Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. Everyone's going to know that we're there. They're going to find out. They're going to come after us. You think Lazarus has problems. We're going to have problems if we go. Then other people you love are going to be in harm's way. Lazarus is going to be fine. Let him sleep it off. And we're safe over here in the wilderness where no one really knows where we are. That's what's going on in their minds. Just now the Jews were trying to stone you and you're going to go back. Which I think if you know anything about Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, English, Spanish, doesn't matter. All of it, we interpret it to mean, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind, Jesus? Why are they panic-stricken? 
in context, they're panic-stricken because we find out something about the disciples that, by the way, is also true of us. They're afraid of the dark. They're afraid of the dark, and they're afraid of things in the dark. That's why they're panic-stricken. And we know that because of what Jesus says. He's like, hey, guys. There's been this conflict of light and dark going on. I've been talking about it my whole ministry. You've been a part of it. There's this conflict of light and dark going on. Twelve hours of light in the day. If you walk in the day, if you walk in the light, you're not going to stumble. If you walk in the darkness, you're going to stumble because there's no light. And so he reminds him of that. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been claiming to be the light of the world. And he's done this on several occasions. His disciples should know by now, perhaps even better than we do, because they saw it. They could feel it. It was right there. His disciples should know by now that Jesus is the light who has come to give light and life to all kinds of people. He is the light who shines in the darkness and overcomes it. He is the light who exposes sin and the light who explains who God is. And after all this time of these guys walking in the light, literally walking with the light, in the light, in Jesus, we discover something about them. That they are afraid of the dark. And when I say they're afraid of the dark, I mean they're afraid of the guys in Jerusalem with the rocks in their hands. They're afraid of the guys in Jerusalem who want to arrest Jesus and by consequence, by implication, perhaps even arrest them. They are afraid of the dark and afraid of things in the dark. They are not walking by faith at this moment. They are walking by fear. They don't want to go to Lazarus no matter how much Jesus loves Lazarus, no matter how much the glory of God is going to be revealed. They want to stay where they are, where they feel safe and secure. They're forgetting about the rhythm of creation, which is also the rhythm of redemption. And that is that light always comes after darkness. Morning always comes after evening. Day always comes after night. And Jesus is reminding them of this truth, of this principle. To walk in the night is to walk in sin and in blindness and in death. But to walk in the light is to walk in righteousness and in sight and in life. The problem with them is the problem that so many of us face. And that is that we are afraid of the dark. And we are afraid of the things in the dark. We are afraid of the things that come from the dark. And it is that fear that paralyzes us and prevents us from doing the good things we know we ought to do. Things like visiting the sick, comforting the hurting, risking our lives for others, speaking the truth against falsehood, living in righteousness before the face of God and man. We're afraid of the dark. And we're afraid of things in the dark. But we've got to come into the light so that those things can be exposed. Now Jesus shines more light on the disciples. He shines more light on us. And He helps us to see things more clearly. Here's how He does it. After saying these things, he says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples say, oh, If he's asleep, if he sleeps, he'll get better, he'll recover. Every parent who's ever had a sick child knows the beauty of letting that sick child sleep and sleep and sleep 
because you know the child will be getting better on the other side of that sleep. I actually think the disciples are being a little bit thick-headed here. I think they probably knew what was going on, but they just didn't want to admit it. Jesus was always speaking in parables and poems, and, and when it was convenient, they, they played dumb. Here's the problem we face. I said we're afraid of the dark, but part of being afraid of the dark is also being afraid of death. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. We like to imagine it's never going to happen. Jesus is using code language here, isn't he? We think of death as this final reality, this ultimate finality. But Jesus comes to us as the light and life of the world. And in this little brief story, we get a unique perspective from Jesus on life and death matters. And you would do well to meditate and reflect on this. You see, from Jesus' point of view, as the Word made flesh, death is not the end of all things, especially for those who trust Him. From Jesus' point of view, death is a temporary state. It's sort of like sleep. Only it lasts a little longer. Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I go to wake him. This is Jesus' code language for Lazarus is dead, and I'm going to go raise him to life. He's not afraid of darkness. He's not afraid of death. We are. And to show us what it means that light overcomes darkness and light overcomes death, he makes a bold claim here. Lazarus is dead. Fact, I'm going to go raise him from the dead. Promise. Fact to be seen. Let's see if he can actually do this. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but the disciples, the text says, the disciples thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus is very plain here. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Now, it's unfortunate. Some of our English translations uh, are sort of cold and clumsy at this point. And they kind of make Jesus out to sound like a, a cocky jerk, okay, if you're not careful how you read that. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. What? I'm glad for your sake. What you... You're glad that our friend died? What? I'm confused. Now, what Jesus is saying is, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Lazarus is dead, and I rejoice for your sake, so that you might believe, because I was not there. Let's go to him. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not rejoicing that Lazarus has died. He is rejoicing that his disciples were going to see a sign, a sign that might enable them to believe that he is the Son of God. For that reason, he rejoices. The thing I want you to notice also in the story is Jesus doesn't say to them, Hey guys, I'm going to go to Bethany and I'll be back later after I've raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, Let us go to him. Why is that important? It's important because 
Like a good shepherd, Jesus is inviting his flock to come and share in this life-changing experience together. He wants his followers to go with him. He wants them to see the glory of God revealed and unveiled before their eyes. He wants them to experience grace in this way. And by the way, they decide to go with him, which is what a missional community does. A missional community rejoices with those who rejoice. It also grieves with those who grieve. Now we know that they all went, but there's an exhortation given by Thomas here that I find to be so strange and yet sort of humorous at the same time. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now there is a lot of debate over this. Some people say what Thomas was saying is, let us go so that we may die with Jesus. Because if he gets close to Jerusalem and those guys find out about it, they're coming with rocks and they're probably going to unload this time. And then other, other scholars say, no, 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 no. He wasn't saying, let us go die with Jesus. He was saying, let us go die with Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. Let us go that we may die with Lazarus. Why does Thomas do this? Thomas has spent the last three years of his life walking around Judea with Jesus. And he has seen one conflict and one controversy after another. He has seen people come and people go. He's been through the ringer with Jesus. He's been through it all. And if you're going to be honest about it, Thomas is feeling not doubtful, as we say, doubting Thomas. No, it's much worse than that. This is cynical Thomas. This is Eeyore Thomas. This is Thomas who has very little hope at this point. He expects to die at some point. This will kill you, is what he's thinking. This ministry will destroy us. And maybe he's thinking at this point, finally, let's get it over with. I love his response because it's one of the more honest responses we get from anyone in all of the Bible. It shows us the raw human response of a true follower of Jesus. Someone who is so comfortable with Jesus, who has such a tight relationship with Jesus, that he can speak his mind freely, that he can express himself openly. And notice that there is no rebuke. Jesus doesn't say, don't talk that way. There's no sanctimonious language. There's not, no correction here. Jesus takes it all in stride. I want to suggest to you that when you know Christ in this way and you follow Him the way Thomas did through thick and thin, then you earn the right to speak this way, to speak your mind, to say these things. Express your concerns. Life is weird. Life is scary at times. Congregations go through all kinds of trouble. Ministers come and go. Life gets very messy. It can be painful and scary. You can lose your reputation. All kinds of things happen, as you very well know. And so we can forgive Thomas for expressing a little bit of cynicism and fatalism at this point. It's momentary. It's not going to last, but it's momentary. And that's where he is at this time. Now this week as I meditated and reflected on this story, the song Silence by Jars of Clay kept coming to my mind again and again and just sort of playing in the background of my mind. You might not know the song, but... 
Here's one verse in which these musicians raise their voices to God and they say, Did you leave me unbreakable? You leave me frozen? I've never felt so cold. I thought you were silent. I thought you left me from the wreckage and the waste on an empty beach of faith. Was it true? Because I got a question. Where are you? Where are you? And I could imagine Martha and Mary sitting in Bethany, not knowing what Jesus is up to, not knowing what he said to his disciples, not knowing what the disciples are saying to him, maybe not even understanding the larger circumstances around the ministry and the death threats coming against Jesus. But just imagining Mary and Martha, and maybe Lazarus if he was conscious, sitting in Bethany, watching life fade away from Lazarus, wondering, where are you? Why are you dragging your feet? When are you going to get here? If you have ever watched a loved one fade from this life into death by way of a terminal illness, and this question has crossed your mind, it has crossed your heart, perhaps even crossed your lips on more than one occasion. This is not a question that we ask when things are going well. This is not the question we ask on vacation when we're soaking in the sun and eating delicious food and resting. We never ask in those moments, where are you? But we always ask, where are you? When life stinks and the walls are crumbling down around us. That's when we ask, where are you? And beneath the question, where are you, are thoughts and feelings that go along with this. I am lost, and I am scared, and I am alone, and I am afraid, and I am struggling. Where are you? My friend is dying of cancer. My child is going wheels off. My debts are crushing. My job stinks. My boss hates me. My spouse left me. Where are you? Our world is falling apart. Floods are wrecking homes. Wars are ravaging nations. Terrorists are wreaking havoc. Where are you? The ones you love are sick and dying. Babies are being slaughtered in their mother's wombs. Children are fatherless. The elderly are pushed to the margins. Where are you? Our community is divided and broken. Our congregation is broke and dangling by a thread. Where are you? I'm dazed and confused and filled with doubts and conflicts. Where are you? What's taking you so long? Why won't you answer me? When will you come to us? 
After his beloved wife died, C.S. Lewis wrote these words in his book, A Grief Observed. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present as commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent in our time of trouble? And he goes on to say, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. And he concludes, Of course it's easy enough to say that God seems absent at our greatest need because He is absent, non-existent. But then why does He seem so present? So present when, to put frankly, we don't ask for Him. I imagine that Martha and Mary wrestled with these kinds of questions as well. Jesus, where are you? Our brother is dying. Our hearts are breaking. Where are you? And this is a question that we must ponder and reflect on this week as we wait to see if and when Jesus will arrive in Bethany. I know that many of you have endured some very difficult things, painful and heartbreaking things in recent weeks and months. And if you're honest and based on what I know about you, I know you've asked this kind of question. Maybe it's been late at night. Maybe it's been early in the morning. Maybe it's been while you're driving down the road. It doesn't matter when. You wanted to know, where are you? Why aren't you here? Will you ever show up? And it's that waiting that is so difficult. And it's so easy for us to forget in that moment that He was always there. 
He never left you. He didn't abandon you. Maybe you didn't see him or notice him, but he was there. He's always with you and he will never forsake you. And he may not come in the very moment that you ask. He may not show up as quickly as you think he should. He may not do things the way you imagine he ought to do them. But he will always do what is right and good for you. And he will always do what is right and good for his glory. So yeah, life stinks. You've buried spouses. You've lost grandchildren. You've endured hardship. You've been through storms. You've been beaten up, hammered down. And while it hasn't always felt this way, Jesus has been with you every step of the way. And through it all, you've been in His hands and in His Father's hands. And while you know that to be true, you don't always feel it to be true. But I hope that the gospel you hear today is a gospel that will keep you from utter despair. I hope it's a gospel that will move you from darkness back into light. Jesus is coming. And He will arrive precisely when He means to. Wait for Him.